0: during the following minutes you will listen to two conversations about defecation I was not planning to do a whole episode about defecation but it just came this way the students they really want to talk about that topic today you will hear Brandy talking about the death of the king of rock and roll and the relationship of that death with defecation and Pernita who is a graduate already she will talk about a rare condition known as Solitary Rectal Ulcer Syndrome, SRUS. Enjoy it.
1: Hi everyone, hope everyone's doing well today. My name is Brandy Trong, and I'm a fourth year med student with Ross University. So to, on today's episode, I was thinking we could talk about if Elvis died pooping. So a pop tr- culture trivia fact I always found interesting was that Elvis Presley may have died from trying to have a bowel movement. So there are different statements on cause of death, ranging from cardiac arrest, drug overdose, anaphylactic shock, and straining to have a bowel movement. But we're not here to figure out which one is accurate or debate all of that. Elvis was found in the bathroom and laying on the floor and many people described it as if he was on the toilet and then fell forward. So if he died from pooping, how does that even happen? So let's explore that a little. When we strain to have a bowel movement, it's called the Valsalva maneuver. This maneuver is divided into four stages. Phase one is when one first starts straining or bears down. This causes an increase in chest pressure and blood being forced out from the large veins. This is reflected in a rise in blood pressure and a decrease in heart rate. So in phase two, there is reduced venous return to the heart because the blood was forced out of the large veins. Because there is less return to the heart, the heart doesn't pump out as much as it normally would, which leads to a fall in blood pressure. The body senses this fall in blood pressure and will compensate by increasing the heart significantly. Phase three is when one stops bearing down, which results in a release of chest pressure. This causes a fall in blood pressure, which causes the heart rate to increase as a reflex. So in the final phase, in phase four, the decreased venous return seen in phase two is now restored, which causes an increase in blood pressure. The heart rate then decreases as a reflex response both blood pressure and heart rate will will return back to normal. This entire process occurs over a span of a little over 10 seconds. So Elvis was known to have a drug addiction, and later some doctors found that he had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a condition in which the heart is unable to pump blood well. He abused a variety of pain medications, including opioids. So opioids are often cause constipation. Therefore, if Elvis was constipated and straining, The Valsalva maneuver compounded by the heart disease and other unhealthy lifestyles he had would have caused his cardiac arrest. So if you end up Googling to find out how Elvis died, let us know what you think and if you think he died from pooping.
2: This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and it's sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your health care home.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Rio Bravo Q Week. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a differential for rectal bleeding. And I have with me a special guest and she's very special because she's connected from a very far away place. She's not in California, but we're doing an experiment. Right now we're making an experiment. We're recording in a remote program. You know, it's very, it's just everywhere, everywhere. It's called Zoom. So we're gonna see if the quality of audio is good. And uh, Dr. Pernita Singh, she's in Dubai. So she's gonna introduce herself right now. Welcome, Dr. Singh.
3: Hi, Dr. Ariaza. Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. So, Hi, everybody. My name is Pranitha Singh. I'm a recent graduate from Ross University School of Medicine. And I am recording, like Dr. Ariaza said, all the way from Dubai, where it is almost four in the morning now. I did yeah. my family medicine uh, uh, core rotation at the Clinica Sierra Vista. Where, when Dr. Aryaza was actually a resident at that time. So our paths have crossed again.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you. And I still remember your face clearly. <laughs> it was yesterday. So uh, what part of Dubai are you at?
3: Uh, so Dubai is actually it's actually a city in the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East. So that's where I am right now.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah. so ignorant. Sorry, <laughs> Dubai is the capital then.
3: Uh, Dubai is actually the biggest city. Abu Dhabi is the capital.
0: Oh, okay. yeah! thanks for <laughs> increasing my culture today. Thank you so much.
3: A <laughs> <laughs> <That> little geography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So, yeah. So, so, so let's talk about this uh, uh, syndrome that you're going to talk about today, uh, which I found very interesting. So can you sure. introduce the, the, the topic, please?
3: Absolutely. So today we are going to talk about something called solitary rectal ulcer syndrome. So solitary rectal ulcer syndrome, S-R-U-S, is a benign, rare underdiagnosed disorder that can mimic and be incorrectly diagnosed as inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, or rectal cancer. The exact prevalence is unknown, but in general, it's reported as an annual prevalence of 1 in 100,000 people. It mostly occurs in the third decade in men and fourth decade in women, with men and women being equally affected. However, Cases have been identified in the pediatric and geriatric populations as well. SRUS is a misnomer because although some patients may present with a solitary ulcer, many present with multiple ulcers that may also involve the sigmoid colon.
0: So multiple multiple ulcers too. Okay. So multiple ulcers, I always think, you know, uh, ulcerative colitis. So... um, the name that you say you say is misleading because it's a solitary rectal ulcer but now you are telling me also that it can have several ulcers too so uh, let's talk about the presentation maybe we can find a, a way to differentiate this from ulcerative colitis
3: sure so the presentation looks like it looks a bit actually like ibd like ulcerative colitis Um, So, rectal bleeding, with the amount varying from a little fresh blood to severe hemorrhage that may require blood transfusions, mucus discharge, excessive straining, abdominal and perineal pain, constipation or diarrhea, feeling of incomplete defecation, tenesmus, and rarely rectal prolapse are clinical symptoms associated with SRUS.
0: So, this sounds a lot also like uh, intestinal parasites. You know, I was trained in Venezuela in medical school. And mm. I remember seeing patients with intestinal parasites. And I remember seeing at least one case of rectal prolapse caused by um, pinworms. It's called pinworms wow. here in the U.S. It has a, a different name in other places on the earth, but it's called pinworm here. But I was actually thinking about another parasite that can present like this. And it's a uh, amoeba. Amoeba is is an intestinal protozoa and that can Mm -hmm. uh, cause also the same thing like rectal bleeding or uh, mucus discharge and excessive straining. So that would be also a differential if you're listening in another place where you have a lot of uh, intestinal parasites.
3: Right. So uh, let's think about how we can actually really differentiate, you know, all of these conditions. Uh, The underlying etiology is unknown. But a number of mechanisms have been suggested, including ischemic injury from the pressure of impacted fecal matter and local trauma due to repetitive self-digitation. Although the latter remains unproven, ulcers usually occur in the mid rectum, which cannot be reached by self-digitation. Additionally, it has been proposed that the perineum's descent, along with the abnormal contraction of the puborectalis muscle during defecation, Results in trauma or a prolapsed rectum, with mucosal prolapse being the most common underlying pathogenesis in SRUS.
0: So you are telling me that basically the ulcer is one of the consequences of this this dysfunctional system in the Mm -hmm. the pelvic floor. So uh, it seems more like a functional problem and Mm -hmm. ulcer being one of the evident consequences of that dysfunction. Exactly. Let's talk about the diagnosis. I can I can um, I can tell that the diagnosis is gonna require multiple studies or a, a multidisciplinary approach.
3: Yes, exactly, Daria Ariaza. So the diagnosis of S R U S is based on clinical features and proctosigmoidoscopy findings, with histological examination and biopsies ultimately being the key to the diagnosis. Imaging studies, including defecating proctography, dynamic. MRI and inner rectal functional studies also aid in the diagnosis with the latter showing that 25% to 82% of SRUS patients have dysenergia with paradoxical anal contraction. This means that when the anus is supposed to contract, it's actually relaxing and when it's supposed to relax, it's actually contracting and that's why you have this pelvic floor disorder. A thorough evaluation is important in ruling out IBD, ischemic colitis, and malignancy.
0: And and as you mentioned, histology evaluation of biopsies, you know, it establishes the diagnosis of solitary rectal ulcer syndrome. Findings include pyromuscular obliteration of the lamina propria, and this obliteration causes hypertrophy and disorganization of the muscularis mucosa, and regenerative Changes. There is an abnormal crypt organization, and in cases where there is more polyps than ulcers, because you know we said that it's mostly ulcer, either a single ulcer or multiple ulcers, but you can mm-hmm. also have polypoid lesions. And when you biopsy these polypoid, les- polypoid lesions, you can have a mucosa that looks more like villiform, has a configuration that is villiform. And in some cases, the glands may be trapped in the submucosa. And and when the glands are trapped in this submucosa, it's called colitis cystica profunda. So those are the typical findings and when you do a histology evaluation of these biopsies.
3: Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the treatments now. Um, Various treatment options are available for SRUS with the treatment choice depending on symptom severity and the presence of rectal prolapse. The initial steps, especially in asymptomatic patients, include patient education and behavioral modifications, which include a high-fiber diet, straining discontinuation, and a discussion of psychosocial factors. And the latter is very important because I've seen patients, you know, they've had anxiety, depression, different mental health disorders, and maybe some discord in the family, which actually leads to, um, you know, the uh, afferent uh, nerves not actually working in coordination with the pelvic floor. So this needs to be uh, talked about. Mm -hmm. Moving on. Yeah, moving, uh, moving on. Biofeedback is the next step in those who fail to respond to conservative measures. Biofeedback seems to help by altering efferent autonomic pathways to the gut. This is what I was talking to before. And this reduces straining with defecation by correcting abnormal pelvic floor behavior.
0: Yeah, you were talking about a a special monitor that you can use for these treatments.
3: Exactly. So uh, another patient that I did see was uh, they actually had to place this probe in the anus And this probe was connected to a monitor and it would send these uh, shock waves and you wouldn't feel it. But, you know, the anus would feel it and the rectal muscle would feel it. And it would help you see if you're coordinating uh, with the shocks or not. So you have to train your, your mind, you have to train your pelvic floor to relax when it has to relax and to contract when it has to contract. So exactly, this is what the pelvic floor uh, behavior is about, and the biofeedback helps you to get those functions back.
0: Okay, it's like having physical therapy for the pelvic floor.
3: Basically. Exactly.
2: So, okay, and, and
0: um, yeah, I can imagine. Like also, you have to to treat, you know, the inflammation in that area, because as we said, that also is one of the consequences of these conditions. So. Topical treatments um, used in this condition would include stuff like corticosteroids, right?
3: Mm -hmm, That's right. Corticosteroids are are one of them. You can also use salicylate, sulfalazine, mesalazine, sucrophilate uh, suppositories and topical fibrin sealant. And uh, you would monitor the progress by uh, measuring your fecal calprotectin. And if it's low, then you know that the ulcer is healing.
0: Okay, okay, so the quantitative car protecting then exactly. Okay, so car protecting can be a very useful test in primary care, especially when you have patients with uh, irritable bowel syndrome symptoms.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: if you suspect that the patient might have uh, IBS, and it's, it's only IBS, you do a fecal car protecting. If it's negative, then you have a reassurance that the patient has only IBS. I say only, but IBS can be very difficult to treat and it has a lot of symptoms too. But at least you can be reassured that this patient probably doesn't have any invasive problem, you know, Crohn's disease Mm -hmm. or ulcerative colitis. So it's good to to know that test in in primary care.
3: Right. But unfortunately uh, for SRUS, surgery is necessary in almost one third of adults with associated rectal prolapse who do not respond to the above treatment options as we discussed. So surgical treatments include ulcer excision, treatment of internal or overt rectal prolapse, and defunctioning colostomy. Open rectopexy and mucosal resection have shown a success rate of 42% to 100%.
0: Okay, so surgery might be necessary. It seems like um, in severe cases you need you know, a multidisciplinary team to help you control the symptoms and treat this condition. Of course, as primary care providers, this should be one of the differential diagnoses for rectal bleeding. So it's good Mm -hmm. to know that, um, you know, not all rectal bleeding are the same. You know, there are some conditions that can be part of your differential list. And uh, for sure, I'm gonna keep this one in mind solitary rectal ulcer syndrome next time I see a rectal bleeding and uh, (laughs) can you give us like a a final conclusion to wrap up this episode Dr. Semi
3: sure Dr. Ayaza. so um, I would like to say that SRUS, solitary rectal ulcer syndrome is still as we've said is an uncommon disease that can mimic inflammatory bowel disease and rectal cancer that's a thorough and complete patient history and workup is required to accurately diagnose SRUS following which patient education reassurance that the lesion is benign and a conservative stepwise individualized approach is important in the management of this syndrome
0: it's a great way to end this episode thank you so much dr sin
3: thank you so much dr ariyaza it was a great pleasure to be on the podcast with you today And looking forward to meeting you and doing this again.
0: Oh, yeah. And I look forward to go to Dubai one day.
3: Sure. (laughs) Always welcome.
0: Have a good day, Bernita. Thank
3: Thank you. You you too.
2: Now we conclude our episode number 83, Solitary Rectal Ulcer. Rectal bleeding, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain. Yes, it sounds like Crohn's syndrome, but your list of differentials may be very long. You may want to add to that list single rectal ulcer syndrome. The treatment goes beyond medications for inflammation and includes pelvic floor training. Even without trying, every night, you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at Rio Bravo at or visit our website at Rio Bravo FMRP.org/Q Week. This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Brandy Trong, and Parnita Singh. Audio by Siraj Amrutya. See you next week.